Okay, this time we will be discussing the 44th Sutta of the Majjhima Nikaya. This is called the Chula Vedala Sutta. The word Vedala is applied to the names of two suttas in the Majjhima Nikaya. The 43rd discourse is called the Maha Vedala Sutta, the greater or longer series of questions and answers. And this one, number 44, is called the shorter series of questions and answers. The word Vedala is used to mean a catechistic type of discussion, a discussion in terms where one person poses a variety of questions to another person and the second person answers those questions. In the Vedala type of sutta, the questions are not always related to a single topic, but they move from one topic to another. It's a kind of miscellaneous collection of questions and answers. And last time we were speaking about the Salayaka Sutta, which was a discourse that the Buddha gave to simple village people, and he kept the discussion on a very simple level, dealing with basic morality, with right conduct. Now this sutta is concerned with very profound questions in Buddhist doctrine and practice. And also this sutta features a bhikkhuni as the main, main figure in the discourse. This is the bhikkhuni named Dhammadina, who is pronounced by the Buddha as the foremost nun or bhikkhuni in, as among the expositors or teachers of the Dhamma. That is, the Buddha had various classifications of his disciples according to their field of specialization. And so in the bhikkhus there were outstanding disciples in each of the major fields. In regard to wisdom there was Sariputta, in regard to psychic powers, Mahamogalana, and so on. Likewise, in the order of nuns, the Bhikkhuni Sangha, there were also outstanding disciples in each of the major fields. In regard to wisdom, it was the Bhikkhuni Kema. In regard to psychic powers, Upalavanna. And in the exposition or teaching of the Dhamma, Dhammadina was pronounced the chief or the foremost. Okay, so this discourse opens when the Blessed One was living in Rajagaha in the bamboo grove at the squirrel sanctuary. And then a lay disciple, an Upasaka named Visaka, comes to the Bhikkhuni Dhammadina, pays homage to her, sits down, and then begins to ask these questions. And maybe the question will come up first, who are these people, Visaka and Dhammadina? Originally, Visaka and Dhammadina, before her ordination, were husband and wife. And Visaka was one of the financiers, the wealthy, wealthy businessmen in Rajagaha. And he was one of the main financiers in the <coughs> regime of King Bimbisara, one of the main financial supporters of Bimbisara. And when the Buddha was still a bodhisattva seeking enlightenment, 
he came to the town of Rajagaha and King Bimbisara was very impressed by him, watching his manner as he went on alms round. And so King Bimbisara went to meet this royal ascetic and had a short discussion with him. And after the discussion, he entreated the Bodhisattva after his enlightenment to please come back to Rajagaha and to teach him the truth, the Dhamma. And so after the Buddha's enlightenment, he fulfilled this promise and went to Rajagaha. And when King Bimbisara went to see the Buddha, he didn't go alone, but as kings do, he took a large circle of his courtiers and supporters to go with him. And amongst this circle was the layman Visaka, the financier Visaka. And when the Buddha gave that first discourse to Bimbisara, at the end of the discourse, many thousands of the followers of Bimbisara achieved stages of enlightenment, the noble paths and fruits. And at that time, Visaka became a Sotapanna, a stream emperor. And yet he kept this attainment to himself and didn't feel that it would be quite fitting to discuss it with his wife. And so he went on continuing to live quite a normal married life with Dhammadina. But during his leisure time, when he was alone, he would continue his practice, his meditation practice. And when the Buddha came to Rajagaha, he would go to listen to the Buddha's discourses. And then at a later time, this must have been several years later after his first attainment, since at this time the order of nuns had already been established. Perhaps this was about five years after the Buddha's enlightenment. He went to hear the Buddha preach, and after the Buddha's discourse, he became an anagami, a non-returner, which means that he completely cut off all kamaraga, all sensual desire. After the discourse, he went back home, and as he was coming home, his wife Visaka was, uh, his wife Damadina was expecting him and was looking out the window and she saw him coming and yet his manner now seemed quite different from the way it was previously. When he would return earlier, he would come with a kind of light-hearted bounce in his walk and he would come walking up to the door and throw open the door quite merrily. But when she saw him walking, he was walking very calmly and mindfully, almost like he was a monk on alms round. And then he quite quietly and gently pushed open the door. And she was waiting expectantly. Earlier when he would come, he would smile and hold her hand and say, how are you, dear? And speak to her affectionately. <laughs> But now he just walked into the house very quietly and just went up to his room. Then when his meal was ready, his wife called him and he just came down very quietly, went to his seat, took, took his meal, then went back upstairs. Then later that day, his wife was very worried and thought, what have I done wrong? Did I do something wrong? And she, she came to him and she said, what is the matter? Why are you treating me so differently today? And then he told her what had happened, that he had gone to hear the Buddha preach the Dhamma, and by hearing the Buddha's discourse, he had reached a stage where all sensual desire had been completely uprooted. And then he told her that because of this, I can no longer live with you as a husband. 
if you wish to live with me, you can do so as sister. We can live together just like brother and sister. But if you don't want to live on those terms, if you wish to remarry, I will give you a large portion of my wealth and you can just go and marry anybody else that you want. Okay, so Dhammadina was actually, when she heard this explanation from her husband, she was not so much interested in taking the husband's wealth or in remarrying. She was much more interested in this disclosure about the Dhamma, the teaching, and the teacher that her husband was following. And she asked whether it was possible for women too to follow this teaching. And the husband said, yes. Then she said, is it possible for women to achieve the stages of liberation? He said, yes. Then she said, is there an order of nuns comparable to the order of monks? And the husband said, yes. Then when she heard this, she thought and reflected a little and then she said, Husband, I no longer want to remain in the household life. I want to become a Buddhist nun. And when Visaka heard this, he was quite delighted. And he went to the Buddha, reported this to the Buddha, and then the Buddha said, if she wants to ordain, then we can arrange the ordination. And then Visaka came back, and he arranged a very lavish and almost ostentatious ordination ceremony for his former wife. And after her ordination as a bhikkhuni, Dhammadina was still living in the vicinity of Rajagaha. And because she was from that area, even though she was intent on practicing meditation and solitude, always her friends and relations were coming to see her morning, <laughs> afternoon, and evening. And so she realized that she could not make much progress living in the vicinity of Rajagaha, and so she went for a period to a more remote region where she could devote herself fully to the practice. And as she had very mature paramis, spiritual perfections from earlier lives, even after a short time of intensive practice, she was able to realize the fruit of final liberation, the fruit of arhatship, together with the special faculties of knowledge called Pati Sambhita. These are the discriminating knowledges, the knowledge by which one understands very deeply the meaning of the Buddha's discourses and can explain and elaborate these discourses in many different ways. And because she possessed these four specialized knowledges, the four patisambhitas. She was outstanding in expounding and explaining the Dhamma. And after some time of solitary meditation, then she thought that she could benefit others now by returning to Rajagaha and beginning to teach. <coughs> and Shortly after she returned to Rajagaha, her former husband Visaka heard that she had arrived in the city and he wanted to find out what her level of attainment is. And yet he couldn't ask this question directly. That would have been somewhat improper. And so he wanted to find out indirectly by asking a series of questions 
which will lead by stages to the deepest levels of attainment. And then if she could answer those questions successfully, then he would be aware that she has reached the final goal. And so here we have Visaka, a non-returner, asking questions to Dhammadina and Arahant Bhikkhuni, who has acquired the Patisambhidas, the four specialized knowledges of discrimination. Okay, so Visaka opens his series of questions by asking Dhammadina. First, he uses the expression in Pali, it's the word Sakaya, Sakaya, which we've translated here, personality. And he asks, what is this that the Blessed One, the Buddha, refers to as personality. Now the Pali word Sakaya is made up of two words. It's a compound. The first part, Sa, or Sak, which can be explained either as Sa, which means one's own, plus kaya, which means body. So sakaya then is one's own body. Or else, and I think more correctly, it can be explained as sat plus kaya. Sat means existing plus body, the existing body. Perhaps the word is somewhat similar to the English word somebody. We say, I am somebody. <laughs> we use the word body, but we put a prefix to it, which sort of transforms the sense. So it's not the physical body only that, you're spe that we're speaking about, but our entire person we refer to as being somebody. <laughs> And Sakaya means the total or the totality of personal existence. When it's translated here, personality, in English we use the personality to mean something like one's character or one's temperament. It's not personality in that sense, but the totality of one's personal existence. What am I? What are we? according to the Buddha's teaching. And according to the Buddha's teaching, what we are is an assemblage, a compound of five ingredients, five factors, which are called the Panchupadana Kanda, the five aggregates which are subject to clinging. And so Dhammadina, when she's asked the question, she says, friend Visaka, these five aggregates here rendering affected by clinging, which now I don't like that too much. I would say subject to clinging are called the person or personality by the blessed one. And then she says, what are these five aggregates? The aggregate of material form, the rupupadhanakanda, the feeling aggregate subject to clinging, this is the vedanupadhanakanda, the perception aggregate subject to clinging, the sanyupadhanakanda, the mental formations aggregate subject to clinging the Sankaru Padanakanda and the consciousness <coughs> the consciousness aggregate subject to clinging that is the Vinyan Upadanakanda. 
Now, these five aggregates are referred to as upadana khanda because these factors, <coughs> for <coughs> these five factors form the objective sphere for upadana, for clinging. Whatever one clings to is something within the five aggregates. When one clings, one clings either to form or the body, to feeling, to perception, to the mental formation, or to consciousness. And each of these aggregates is in turn a compound or a complex made up of certain subdivisions. And in the suttas, the Buddha divides each of these aggregates into its constituents. Material form, the rupakanda, the Buddha analyzes into the four primary elements the great elements of the earth element, the liquid element, fire element or heat element, and the air element. And also the types of matter or form that are derived from these four great elements. <clears throat> so we have this physical body as the internal earth element, we have the solid aspect of the body, that's the earth element. We have the fluid elements, the fluids in the body as the liquid element. We have bodily heat as the fire element, and we have respiration as the wind element. Then there are types of derived matter, secondary matter, the sense faculties especially the eye, ear, nose, tongue, and body. Those are the most important of the secondary types of material phenomena. So all of these types of form taken together make up the aggregate of form, the rupakanda. And insofar as form is subject to clinging, a potential object of clinging, it's called the Rupupadana Kanda, the form aggregate subject to clinging. Then the Buddha takes the Vedana Kanda, the aggregate of feeling, and shows that this too is made up of various types of feeling. There is feeling that arises through each of the six sense faculties feeling arising through contact by the eye, contact by the ear, nose, tongue, body, and internal feeling, feeling that arises through the mind faculty. So we have six types of feeling, and then these can be divided, whether they're pleasant, painful, neutral, so we get 18 types of feeling, <laughs> and so on. And all of these are collected together into this aggregate or group of feeling. And insofar as feeling is subject to clinging, it's called the aggregate of feeling subject to clinging. Vedanupadana. Then perception, we're always perceiving discriminating form, sound, smells, tastes, touches, or ideas. And these six different types of discrimination or identification or distinguishing, noticing of different objects, these are all different instances of perception and the Buddha groups them all together under this designation, the perception aggregate. 
the sanya khanda. And so far as that aggregate of perception is something that can be clung to, it's called the sanyupadana khanda, the aggregate of perception subject to clinging. Then we are always engaged in intending, planning, desiring, <coughs> deciding, willing, all of these volitional activities, activities of will, or intentional activities, are comprised under the designation Sankara, sometimes translated mental formations or volitional formations. And in these suttas, the Buddha distinguishes six types of Sankara, which he calls the six groups of volition, the six types of intentions, that is, volitions regarding each of the six objects. Volition regarding form. I want that form. I want to enjoy that form. Volition regarding sound. I don't like the sound of the traffic, so I say, please close the window. Volition regarding smells. I sniff something, ah, that's a sweet incense. I want to get some. I smell delicious food, and then I think, ah, I want to go see what's cooking. These are intentions or volitions regarding smell. Taste, I taste some delicious food, I want to taste more. I feel a pleasant touch sensation, I want to repeat that touch. Then I have many thoughts, desires, plans fantasies, hopes, expectations, all of these are internal mental volitional activities. And all of these are grouped together under this one designation, Sankara Khanda. Then in the suttas, the Buddha mentions many other mental factors apart from volition. And so in the Abhidhamma system, all of these other mental factors are put together and brought into the Sankara Khanda. Then at the base of this entire system of experience there is consciousness, awareness, knowing an object through a sense faculty. This is the Vijnana Khanda. And the Buddha distinguishes this into the six types of consciousness. These are distinguished on the basis of the sense faculty. There's cognizing, knowing through the eye, eye consciousness. Knowing through the ear, that's ear consciousness. Knowing through the nose, that's nose consciousness. Through the tongue, through the body, and then just pure knowing of internal objects through the mind faculty. Knowing ideas, images, judgments, speculations, memories, anticipations. All of this internal mental activity, that's the work of manovinyana, mind consciousness. And so we start with this simple concept of Sakaya, the person, the individual identity. It gets broken down first into these five aggregates of clinging, and then each of these aggregates in turn is a heap or collection of individual factors which are quite distinct from each other. And so the person, or Sakaya, is actually quite a complex phenomena built up out of all of these constituent elements. And the Bhikkhuni Dhammadina 
answers Visakha's question by showing the main categories of the person. The Panchupadana And so when Visakha receives this answer from Dhammadina, he says, Sadhu Ayam, good lady. And he delights and rejoices in her reply, and then he asks her another question. He says, Lady, the Buddhists, the Buddha and the disciples speak of the origin of personality, the origin of personality. Whenever you get in the Pali, one term repeated twice, like Sakayo, Sakayo, Sakaya Samudio, Sakaya Samudio. It's a way of indicating that the term is in general use amongst the Buddhist followers or amongst the people at large. And so one wants to know, according to the Buddha's understanding, what exactly is the meaning of that term. And so one wants to know, according to the Buddha's understanding, what exactly is the meaning of that term? What exactly is the explanation of the use of that term? And so now, Visaka is asking this very important question, where does the person come from? How does the person the individual come into existence. And so Dhammadina, being very skilled in the analytical knowledge of the Dhamma, replies, friend Visaka, it is craving, tanha, which brings about puna bhava, renewal of existence, repeated existence, or we could say re-becoming, which is accompanied by delight and lust, nandi raga sahagata, and which delights here and there in this object or that object, that is craving for sensual pleasures, craving for existence, being, for more becoming, and craving for non-being, for non-existence. This is called the origin of personality by the Blessed One. Okay, so now Visaka has asked that question, how does the person come into existence. Where do we come from? How does this compound of the five aggregates originate? <clears throat> and here Dhammadina replies exactly with the question, uh, exactly with the formula of the second noble truth when the Buddha says, what is the origin of suffering, of dukkha, then he gives exactly the same answer. And this reply and this very structure of the sutta, I think shows it, sheds an important light on the meaning of dukkha in the Four Noble Truths. Often people or commentators or those who are trying to explain the Dhamma always think that dukkha just means experience suffering. And when craving is said to be the origin of suffering, therefore that means that when you have craving, then you might have sorrow, grief, misery. And when you're rid of craving, then there's no sorrow, no misery, and all dukkha is finished. In some respects, that answer is partly correct since if there's craving, then one is 
vulnerable to sorrow and grief. And if there's no craving, then there's no sorrow, no misery, no grief. But the real deeper meaning of dukkha in the Four Noble Truths is these five aggregates themselves. Everything that we identify as I and mine is dukkha. Not that it's misery and grief and sorrow, but it's, you say, unworth clinging to, not worth clinging to. It's, they're just impersonal phenomena that arise and pass away. We falsely identify with them as mine, I, myself, and we cling to them. But when we see them wisely, they're just these impersonal phenomena arising and disintegrating. And in the second noble truth, the Buddha is not only giving a psychological explanation of why we have suffering. He's actually indicating what is the root of the entire life process. What is it that keeps these five aggregates continually coming into being from one life to another? What is it that sustains and fuels the round of rebirth? And here the same point is reformulated in terms of Sakkaya, the personality. What is it that originates the five aggregates? Why do the five aggregates come into being? A longer explanation would bring in the formula of Paticca Samuppada, dependent arising. But in that whole formula, we call the powerful driving force, the internal combustion engine of the wheel of samsara is tanha, craving. And so craving is explained as the origin of personality. And we note in the formula when the Visaka gives a reply, when Dhammadina gives a reply, she says it is this craving which Pono bhavika. It's craving which produces re-becoming. It's craving which brings about new existence, which sets in motion the production of new existence. And this craving is analyzed as threefold. There is craving for the pleasures of the senses. I don't think that needs much explanation. <laughs> but at a deeper level, there is craving for existence. Just the raw, unadulterated drive to go on becoming in one form or another. And often this craving for existence gives rise to various views or theories or dogmas about eternal existence, everlasting life, the indestructibility of the soul, the infinite duration of the spiritual principle and so on. All of these speculations we could say are manifestations or uh, products of this basic drive or desire to go on existing, to be able to say, I am, I am, I am. But then some people who get overwhelmed by sorrow, by disappointment, frustration and grief, they don't want to go on existing anymore, but they want annihilation, self-destruction. 
And so then, in their case, craving gets deflected from its basic direction, which is to go on existing, and it takes the kind of distorted form of craving for annihilation. Those people who are really afflicted with sorrow try to terminate their existence by committing suicide, but there are philosophical types who, <laughs> who I think really like to go on existing, but through reflection on life, come to the conclusion that life is full of suffering and misery, and so they work out philosophical theories that at the end of the lifespan, existence comes to an end. This is called in the suttas, the Ucheda Ditti, the view of annihilation, or Vibhava Ditti, the view of non-being. And so we have, and I think it's very discerning of the Buddha <laughs> to have included this craving for annihilation amongst the three types of craving. And also, this craving for non-being is also one of the factors that keeps alive the process of becoming. Even though a person might be utterly desperate and so miserable that they just want to completely annihilate their existence by jumping from the top of a 60-story building, but that very desire for self-destruction is a seed for new becoming in the future. The way to Nibbana, or perfect liberation, is not through this urge to self-destruction, but by understanding the true nature of things and removing all forms of tanha, all types of craving. And so now we have these two two questions and two answers which bring to manifestation two of the Four Noble Truths. But now they're expressed not in terms of dukkha or suffering, but in terms of sakkaya, personality, or individual existence. We have, on the one hand, the five aggregates which constitute the person, and we have this tanha, which is the cause or origin of the person. And now one might ask, are these two things separate from each other? Is it the case that maybe in the past existence there was tanha, craving, suspended in space, and then somehow tanha gave rise to sakaya, to the person? Is it like that? Is it? Is that the way it is? That there's this kind of primordial tanha without any form or shape, then it just out of nowhere suddenly gives rise to an individual existence? Is that the case? Is that what the Buddha teaches? No, that isn't the case. Whenever there is tanha craving, that craving is itself part of a personality. It is itself rooted in sakaya. And so we have the person arising from tanha, from craving. And this craving, in turn, is part of a sakaya, a person. 
And that person has arisen from previous tanha. And that previous tanha has been part of a previous personality, Sakaya. And so when we examine this relationship, you just have to take these two terms, the person of the five aggregates and tanha as part of the five aggregates, <coughs> part of the five aggregates in a previous existence. And just from that, you can see at once that the entire cycle of samsara has no beginning, no discoverable beginning. Because any particular individual life arises from previous tanha, the craving for existence from the preceding life. That craving was based upon a person, an individual. And that individual came from craving. That craving depended upon an individual. And one can just go back aeons and aeons and aeons and one always finds exactly the same situation. Personal life, individual life, springing from craving in the preceding life, that craving based upon its own personality, its own self-life. And so we can, <coughs> we can represent that with this diagram. We have life Z, that is the five aggregates existing now. They can't come from craving and that Sakaya came from the Tanha craving in life X, which was part of the Sakaya in life X. And thus we could go back from from X to what comes Anyway, you could take it all the ways back to life A, but when you get to life A, don't think that you have a first beginning there, since <laughs> then that A becomes a Z, and you have to go back still further, and one goes back infinitely without any discoverable beginning. Okay, maybe we will stop at this point, and then... We'll continue with the discourse next week. Then if there are any questions on what was discussed now, then... Um, does the intuition fit into the vinyana? Intuition. Yeah, intuition yeah, is... I would say that intu to intuition would probably be a combination of sanya and vinyana. I say it's a complex phenomenon. I wouldn't, I wouldn't assign it to one or the other. I'd say sanya is, actually I'd say sanya is prominent. I'd say that the intuition, it's a kind of, what would it call, dhamma sanya. It's a kind of perception of ideas. So vinyana, I say that they work together, but sanya is the, Say central, the central.
I'd say that it's tied up with that wanting to exist, but I'd say that there's a basic urge or disposition towards self-preservation which remains even after the craving is completely uprooted. Like somebody who is an arhant, if he's in a room, say, and then <laughs> the room catches fire and the fire is very big, I'd say that he will walk out of the room. He won't just say that now I've gotten rid of all craving for existence, I'm just going to remain sitting here. I don't care anymore. But I'd say that this is sort of a speculative answer rather than a doctrinal or canonical one, since I don't think the issue is really brought up quite in these terms anywhere in the canon. I would think that there's a kind of, at a, that there's an urge towards survival that operates at the biological level which persists even when that tanha is uprooted. So even in an arhat, there's a basic urge towards that self-preservation, but when that basic urge to self-preservation is challenged in any way, then there's no mental disturbance at all, no fluctuation in the mind. If he's trapped in the burning room, then he realizes that he cannot escape from it. He'll just sit down and let his body be consumed and pass away. So the difference really for the Arahant and everybody else is the clinging factor? There is that clinging, yeah, yeah. I would say that that is so. Does it necessarily imply uh, conscious desire to, to finish your life, to commit suicide, or in any other way, or can it just be a desire to run away from a, a say, present set of conditions without clearly having desire to, to finish this life, commit suicide? I would offer like a conjecture. Actually, Vibhava Tanha is not really specifically to my knowledge, analyzed and explained in the sutra. Um, there are some passages which seem to indicate that the Vipavatana is the type of craving which gives rise to these formulated views that a being after death is completely annihilated. But this is what I have thought of sort of as a personal conjecture, that the Buddha sometimes illustrates like two types of desire regarding the five aggregates. Let my form be thus. Let my form not be thus. Let my situation, let my feelings be thus. Let my feelings not be thus. I think one might say at a very fundamental level that the desire to be in a particular way is bhavatantha. And the desire to stop being in that way is vibhavatantha. So one might speculate that in a situation where one is desiring to escape from an unpleasant situation, that this is a type of vipavatanha. Would, would that answer the question? Yeah. Any, any further questions? Okay, then we will continue next week.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.